You ready? Okay. She's so young, she's got the answer. She never la 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 like I do. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> never mind. I uh, I want to talk about the harmony, so I wouldn't even attempt it <laughs> because uh, that's a topic of discussion for today. Yes. And um, yeah, I don't think. I don't think. Uh, yeah. No, I'm going to save that for. We'll say that our, our guest Mo Berg dancer. There you are. Mo Berg is coming on the program today. Yes. And uh, to do some research, Greg, I went through this book. Mm-hmm. Have not been the same. The Can Rock Renaissance, 85 to 95. Mm-hmm. Um, written by guests Michael Barkley, Jason Schneider. Multiple time guests. Yeah, and and Ian Jack, who hasn't come on, but there's a great section here on uh, the pursuit of happiness in Moberg. So, got some uh, questions to ask our guest today. But um, well, I do I do a little bit of research. No, oh, good, good. You know? One of us has to. One of us has to. Yes, and the other one reminds the same person to put something up on Facebook. Yeah, totally. There were some good questions from the studio audience. So I'm looking forward to. We do. Okay, good. I'm just uh, logging in. Yeah. And uh, from Dr. Jones and Connie Crosby and Jennifer Johnson and Steve Vesters. So, yeah. Oh, look, I don't even. Okay. You, uh, you, uh, yeah, because you've got some questions on your side. Some of the same questions. So a lot of a lot of the same themes. People want okay. to know, want to dive deeper into the beginning times of pursuit of happiness. Yeah. People want to talk about what Bone's doing now that he's an adult. That that joke I'm sure never gets old with him. I know. I don't know if he's fed up with it. I'm afraid to ask I, him. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure he is. I'm sure he is. He's probably once he listens to this podcast, he's probably now just turned it off. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) He's not going to listen to the rest. Hi, the following podcast is brought to you by Radical Road Brewery, the best craft beer in the heart of Leslieville. Find them at 1177 Queen Street East. That's Radical Road Brewery. Hey, this is Mo Berg from The Pursuit of Happiness. I'm also a record producer, and I'm here on Welcome to the Music. Welcome, welcome, Mo. I have to tell you, it is uh, it is an absolute honor for me to have you on the show with us. Um, I, I I remember I remember sort of mid eighties, I guess mid to late eighties. I remember my my bandmate at the time. I don't think it was my roommate, but came to my apartment and had this cassette that he put in, and we just like we just geeked out. It was like a, just a perfect song and then i remember the video and the and and the video was so queen street and when i say that i don't mean as in like it was literally queen street obviously from an adult now but it was just like it was everything toronto that we were all sort of living with and experiencing um so it was just the quintessential 
song with I'm an adult now. So I just want to thank you for that. And thank you for Love Junk, which to me is one of the most perfect albums front to back. So I want to start off this by I'm honored and thank you for joining us. Oh, today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I, you know, I always, you know what I love? I love when people associate us with Toronto because I moved from Edmonton to Toronto and, you know, obviously the best decision I ever made in my whole life. And I love Toronto. I'm a Torontonian. I love it here. Yeah. I love the city. And because I think I, Universal Records was having a, their night at the at the um, Rogers Center for a Blue Jays game. And they said, we want to get someone to throw out the first pitch that's quintessential, quintessentially Toronto. And they chose me. <laughs> and I was like, I was so honored that they thought I am sort of like, because I didn't grow up here. I'm not a, I wasn't born yeah. in Toronto. I, I didn't come here until, you know, I was in my 20s. But the fact that they associated me so closely with Toronto I, was such an honor to me because I, I really do love the city. So I like that you said that, you know, that, you know, my video really represented Toronto. And a lot of people say that too. They say, you know, when I look at that video, it makes me pine for the old Toronto, like before Queen Street became corporatized and corporate, whatever, however you yeah. would say it. became corporate. When that, when that parking lot was actually there and the bamboo was behind you. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. How was your first pitch, by the way, Mo? <laughs> it was, that was a great moment. Was it really? Yeah. I, 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 it was a ball, but I did get it to the pitcher. You, okay. <laughs> that was the, my whole thing. It's like, if I can get it so that the pitcher can actually catch it, I'll feel okay. So. Nice. Not a strike, but I did get it to the pitcher. But you got it there. Perfect. That's half the battle. The, the, the catcher. Sorry, not the catcher. <laughs> the catcher was actually a pitcher. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. So, t I mean, tell us about Edmonton, because even, you know, the song that Greg talks about, um, you you wrote that while you were in Edmonton from, from what I've read. Yes. Um, what's what's the inspiration in Edmonton that, that drives you uh, you know, to pick up a guitar and, and write some some iconic uh, pop songs. Well, well, so I yeah, so I grew up actually in a suburb of Edmonton called St. Albert. Um, and so which is like about 12,500 people, like one of those idyllic suburbs where you know, there was no crime, nothing really happened there. And so that was kind of my life. And I met two guys, this guy Kim Upright and this guy Bob Drysdale. And when we were in the high school, we started a band. And Edmonton was kind of like a place where you were in a cover band. That was the only kind of band you could be in there. There was no clubs. The way the liquor laws were, you couldn't have a club. You could play in a hotel bar or in an unlicensed venue. There was no like nightclubs. And so, you know, we played like covers. And then, you know, later on, we started, we um, basically, I, we, you know, we heard like the New York Dolls and Iggy and the Stooges. And then we heard Sex Pistols and we go like, oh, okay, this is our music. So we started a band. Like we were kind of the OGs of the Edmonton punk scene. All and right. So, mm -hmm. so it was mm -hmm. us and a couple other bands. And so that was us. And so what was great about that was it was just being like a complete nerd my whole life. Now I was part of a scene. And uh, back in the early days of punk, like everybody was a nerd. That was the people that were kind of like, uh, drawn to that music it wasn't like like in the hardcore scene it was like bald guys with tattoos that beat each other up but that bef when I was into it it was way before that it was just like college students and people who wore glasses like me so I was like hey my tribe I finally found you guys you know <laughs> and, so, and so so yeah so it was it was a great time and you know we I started writing songs and we played like 
Sex Pistols covers and Clash covers and Jam covers and Buzzcocks covers, and then I wrote my own songs. And so that was kind of like how I started. That was kind of my entry into like music and being a songwriter was that. And so I did that for a long time. And and then and then there was one night. This is a story I've told before, but this is one night that sort of changed my life a little bit. And so we were playing at this sort of university, like the university, there's no place to play. So the University of Alberta would sometimes let us play there or, you know, places like that. So we were playing at this bar and it wasn't one of the normal university bars. It was just like some place they just uh, threw a gig. And so I'm standing on this like six inch high stage and... And one of the things, you guys probably wouldn't know this, but one of the things back in the early days of punk was one of the ways you sure showed your appreciation for the band was to spit on them. All right, this was like a British thing, all right? And so um, and so anyway, so there was this one guy and he was like a, like the, sort of like a super rich kid, always had like a really nice leather jacket. His, I think his father was like the head of surgery at the university hospital. And so he just stood in front of me and he just spit at me. Like, so, cause I was like right in front of him, it'd be like, you know, if, imagine someone standing in front of you, but you're only like six inches of, higher than that person. Yeah. And he just spat on me, spat on my like 1963 Rickenbacker that wasn't even mine. It was my brother-in-law's. And he just spit on me and I'm just like spit everywhere on my face and my glasses. And I was just like, and I'm thinking to myself, I think I just have to take this. This is kind of like punk. Like, this is what I got to do. And it's just like, and I'm thinking, my mom didn't really raise me to be this. Like, I, I don't want <laughs> I didn't want to be spit on like my whole, life. and I was just kind of like, I'm having this really existential moment. Like I, for the last two years before this, I felt like I was in this, like I said, I felt like I found my tribe. I belong somewhere. And then I was like, I don't know if I belong here anymore. And then just as I was kind of like, this was all going through my head as I was kind of mechanically performing our set, some guy just punched this guy in the face and just knocked him out cold. And he just like, he was kind of like, I've had enough of this guy punch, spitting on Mo. I'm just like, I'm done with this guy. And he punched him and knocked him out. And the whole place just went berserk. And the cops were there in like 30 seconds as though they were waiting outside, waiting for something to happen. And then it was like, I don't think I can play this music anymore. It's like, I, I want to play shows where like girls come to the shows and like beat <laughs> up and like I don't get spit on. And so I kind of like transitioned a little bit into like, you know, I because I'd always loved pop music. I grew up listening to like the Beatles and the Beach Boys and the Who and, you know, stuff like that. The Raspberries, Badfinger. And so I still played like the whole thing about my band, the, the Modern Minds, which is the band that, that I was playing at the time, was we were like played super fast. We played the Ramones and Buzzcocks. We played everything like so we'd have to play like 40 songs because our songs were like one minute long. And so um, so I still kept that energy and stuff. But I kind of transitioned out of the sort of punk world and I just was became a fan and um, and then I went through this whole thing. There was this guy, I think it was uh, Cadence Weapon's dad, had a radio show in in um, Edmonton called The Black Experience and Sound. And so I used to listen to that, and then I was like, oh, this is amazing. And so I started listening to like, you know, like early like hip hop, like Wolf Ticket and like. Um, Grandmaster Flash and the Sugar Hill Gang, and I was listening to like all this, like kind of R and B stuff. Your Earth, Wind, and Fire, and Stevie Wonder and stuff. I really got into that, and I started trying to put that in my music, and it was like terrible. <laughs> I was, it was never any good. But what it did was, it kind of got me into this idea that you could like talk in music and that's what led to I'm an adult now. So I'm an adult mm. now is largely just me talking. Yeah. But I think I wouldn't have got there if I hadn't sort of 
listen to that all that you know all that sort of music the sort of r&b that r&b and the hip-hop and stuff that i was listening to at the time so that kind of got me there and so as soon as i wrote i'm an adult now and she's so young and a few things and i kind of like uh, i started playing it just by myself i just would go up on stage and just play by myself kind of like uh you know i don't know who would be a good example like who am i thinking of super political guy Bob Dylan? No. Neil Young? No. I don't know. Those, those two are political. <laughs> I'll, I'll think of it. But just like you'd go up on stage and do the whole show by yourself and I'd just talk and whatever. Yeah. And so then I moved to Toronto because I was like, Edmonton is a total, like, I can't do anything here. This is, I, I'll never be successful if I move here. And a bunch of my friends had moved to Toronto before me. And so I said, so I had a place to stay and all that. So I was like, I'm going to move to Toronto and just do this. So I moved to Toronto. And one of the impetuses of that was I I had gone for a visit and I opened up Now Magazine when I got there. I was st staying with a friend of mine, Belinda Robbins. And and I looked and I said, wow, all these gigs. It's like, I said, yeah, all those gigs are like tonight. And I said, that would be how many gigs would be in an entire year in Edmonton. <laughs> well, there's as many gigs in one night in Toronto as there are in a year in Edmonton. It's like, I feel like this is the place I need to be. So anyway, I went there and then there was this place called the Cabana Room and they had a, a um, like an open mic. And so I started just playing by myself at this open mic and, and it was just like a bunch of amateurs, you know, and the, but someone like Bob, Bob Wiseman would be there and he'd come and he'd play, you know? Oh, wow. Yeah. Which I thought was amazing. And, and Bob Wiseman was so cool. He'd be like, he'd be like paying like rapt attention to all these kind of like amateur guys that would just be up there playing like Thunder Road by Bruce Springsteen or, you know, like something like that. And he'd be like, this is great. And he, he was just such a great uh, appreciator of music. And just like, he could sort of find the good in everything. I always really appreciated that about him. So that was how I kind of got my start in Toronto. So sorry. That's, that was that's, long No, that's awesome. No. That's, that's great. We, we love that. And it's funny when you talk about the cabana room, my favorite part always of playing the cabana room was carrying gear up and down those stairs. Oof, oh yeah. It love was that. almost as much fun as carrying the gear up and down the stairs at the Elmo. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That was even more fun. That, that is true. That is true. So, yeah. so wait, hold so on. Fast. Time out. Wait. Oh, yeah. Hold on. Go ahead. Greg, Greg, Mo, both you guys, you guys are the musicians. I'm, I'm just the kid that would show up to your shows. <laughs> like, ex explain this carrying up and down the stairs. Like, what? Take us behind the scenes, like inside baseball stuff. <laughs> Mo, <laughs> you want to, you want to take yeah. That no, I mean, you? I mean, I mean, you know, a lot of times the places we were playing then were bars that you know rented above a hotel or whatever like the cabana room above the spina spadina hotel so right. you know the main floor was the prime space like um you know even isabella carrying the gear downstairs and back upstairs right it's like unless you were you know long john baldry or somebody like that that was playing the main floor you're playing the basement you're carrying your gear up and down so you know when you uh, for me you know when we were starting out and playing you're playing rooms wherever you can play. And a lot of times it's where the cheap rent was. And that was upstairs. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. So, yeah, I mean, you're responsible for getting your, like, it's not like we had a road crew or anything. <laughs> so we were lugging heavy gear up and downstairs. And that was a big part of being in a band. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. So, so yeah, uh, you mentioned New York dolls and I wanted to sort of now get to love junk because as I mentioned at the beginning is one of my favorite all time albums. In fact, I was with, somebody I work with yesterday and 
when I mentioned we were going to sit down and have a chat with you today, he said, is, is Chris Thompson, he's actually the brand ambassador for 40 Creek. I work with Campari. So he's um, the, the, the main, the main face of 40 Creek. And uh, he said, I want you to let Mo know that I've listened to love junk at least once a week. He's like, wow. you know, he's just, he's blown away. But so what I wanted to ask is you mentioned about New York dolls. I think of bat out of hell. I think of, you know, skylarking. I think of we're an American band and it's like, you know, Todd Rundgren produces Love Junk. I know you went on to work, we collaborate with him on, on um, uh, White Knight album, I think it was, that album. So like really keen to understand, like how did that come together that you were able to work with Todd and what what was that like working with him on for that album? Well, we, um, so yeah, so we got signed to Chrysalis Records Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and so we were in, you know, we were kind of, fortunately, because of the independent success of I'm an adult now, we were able to tour and do stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And so we were touring around and we end up, you know, in the New York office, their New York office, and just talking to them about, you know, doing the record and they'd sign us. And, and, um, and we, and, and they kind of said to us, you know, who would you like to produce your record? And we said, I just said, Todd Rundgren, like you say, I want to be president of the moon. You know, you, just, like, <laughs> you say things like, you know, there's no way that's going to happen. But, you know, yeah. you say it and it's, you know, and I literally said it and forgot I'd even mentioned it, mm. you know, and thought, you know, well, they're going to probably give us some junior producer or whatever, you know, some mm. entry level guy. And um, and so, you know, we kind of left just New York and we were kind of touring through the northeast of the estates and then went back into Canada and ended up in Winnipeg. And we're at Soundcheck in Winnipeg and someone came up, comes up to me and says, hey, you know, well, they're phone for you, Mo. And so I pick up the phone and say, hello. And he says, hi, Mo, it's Todd Rundgren. I'm like, wow, can you wow. believe that? You're the person you admire most in the entire world is calling you up on the phone. I mean, just imagine it. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, he starts talking to me and he says, oh, I heard your demos, your record company sent them over and I'm interested in producing you, blah, 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 the whole thing. So that was literally it. Our record company sent our demos over and and then he told me wow. what a terrible guitar player I was. And, you know, <laughs> I read that. <laughs> and, 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 you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah. yeah. So how, okay, so you, you have to, explain this to me because there's a saying that you never want to meet your heroes because you'll end up being disappointed. Right. So, I mean, how was it when you met Todd and you started working with him? Were you disappointed or was it (laughs) everything you always hoped it would be? Well, that's a, it's a complex question. What was great, what happened that was really great for many reasons, but I mean, basically we sort of just, we didn't do like our regular kind of pre-production where we got together with him and worked on the songs and stuff. Like he just, we just talk on the phone and he'd call me and he'd say, or I'd call him and he'd say, okay, here's the song. Here's what I want you to change about the song. And then I'd go back and change it myself. And then I'd send him a new demo and then he'd approve it or whatever. But at one point, the record company was like, Todd needs to come and see you guys live because you're so much different live than you are in your recordings. And so Todd said, I'll come and see you. And so he came to see us and um, we came to see us at the Diamond Club, which was what the Phoenix used to be. The Phoenix used to be called the Diamond Club. And so he came to see us and it was like, wow, he said, this completely changed my whole way I'm going to produce this record. Mm -hmm. And but the thing is, he said... He said, my flight's at like 8 a.m. tomorrow. I said, and so we said, why don't you just come over to Johnny, who is our bass player, Johnny Sinclair. Just want to come over and we'll just hang out. And so he came over and we just played music and I just got all my fan questions out. I just said, and asked him everything I ever wanted, like 20, you know, my whole lifetime of questions yeah. I wanted to talk. So I just asked him everything. And I feel like I kind of got it all out of my system. Okay. And then when we got together, we went to, 
upstate New York, um, just outside of Woodstock, where his studio mm-hmm. was. And I've kind of felt like, okay, well, we're just working now because I think I've exhausted all the questions. I, and I still really admired him and I'm still kind of idolizing him. But I think some people have had issues working with Todd. And mm-hmm. he's not, the thing about Todd Rungwin is he's not like a conventional producer where he's like, hey, you're doing great. Let's try one more time. Let's, you know, he's kind of like, he's, he, he, I, I, there's never been a time where he told me that I did something right or I was good. Like he's never, <laughs> but, but I—it's it, kind of like having one of those dads, I guess. I was going to say that. It's <laughs> like you know your dad loves you. Yes, but he doesn't. He may not say it to you, but you know he loves you. And so that's kind of how I always felt my relationship with Todd was. It's like I don't think he would have bothered with this if he didn't think that. Yeah. Was sure. And he's, you know, anytime he talks about it, it's like, if I'm listening to a podcast or read an interview, he's always says like the absolute nicest things about us. Like he's always saying great, amazing things about us, but he would never say that to my face. (laughs) (laughs) I know he likes us and I know he likes me. And then the fact that he asked me to collaborate on his record was, you know, the ultimate compliment. For sure. I was in like, I was in, um, I was with my, my wife and my kids and we were in like Niagara Falls and, um, and we were like in a, my kids were playing in an arcade and I was just kind of standing around while they played games in an arcade. And I just kind of checked my phone and there was like an email from Todd and it's like, hey, I'm making a record, you know, would you co-write a song with me? Pretty please, XOXOXO. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> and I just like, I just took my phone and I just put it back in my pocket. And I was like, and then I took my phone, I said, I showed my wife, I said, I said, you know, look at this email. And he goes, she's like, she just flipped out. Like, it's unbelievable. And I'm like, I guess it is, isn't it? It's pretty unbelievable. But I was just like, I was just in this shock. I was just in this shock. Like, it's one thing, you know, I paid him like tons of money to produce a record. I mean, just, well, we did it for the money. But he's like, yeah, the yeah. fact that he actually wanted to, you know, collaborate with me was like kind of next level. And so, yeah, that was pretty. That's, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Do you, do, you have it, do you have it framed and like, Printed and framed on your wall that day. I should. I really you should. should. Yes. <laughs> My goodness. Well, I'm. I'm glad that Dad told you that he loves you. So. So that's. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, he. You talk about. Um, you and him having this discussion about. Um, you know what's the song about, and I'm not sure which song he was referring to when he asked you this question, and you didn't really have an answer. And he said, you better figure out the answer to that before the Rolling Stone asks you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious, like when you're when you're writing these songs that, you know, Canadians of, you know, Greg, Greg and our in my age uh, listened to and fell in love with. What were what were those songs about? Well, yeah, that, that was a very interesting discussion. And it was a, like a, something that I sort of carried with me ever since was. I think when you're writing a lot of times, young songwriters are just kind of very writing very intuitively, like something comes to mind and you kind of write it down and it seems good. And then you, you know, that seems, I got a song. It sounds pretty good to me, you know, yeah. without really being very self-critical about it. And I find this a lot with bands that I produce, like they write a song and then I say like, what are you talking about here? And then they're like, I don't like, and they try to make up a, something and it's always very phony. And so it's like, you know, you, but, but Todd said, it's like, what if someone from Rolling Stone asks you and then you look like an idiot because you don't know what you're talking about? So it kind of gave me, like, it made me feel like I needed to examine things and sort of say, like, okay, well, this doesn't make as much sense as I probably should. And so maybe I need to sort of clean this up. And, and so, yeah, that was like that. It was a very, actually a very informative uh, 
thing that really helped me a lot with my songwriting. Interesting. Does, does the music come before the lyrics or the lyrics before the music or? It, it, it can happen both ways. I went, okay. I went through periods where I wrote the music first and then wrote lyrics to it. And then I wrote, I spent a long time just writing lyrics and then trying to mm. find music that would fit the lyrics. So it's, it, it works kind of both ways. Yeah. The, the, one of the reasons I asked that is I think about, and, and, and I'm a, we actually, we had the, the, um, the author for meaning of Metallica, the, the behind the lyrics last, last week or two weeks ago. Um, and you know, I fully admit it. I am not a lyrics guy. I'm a music guy. And even, even when I'm listening to the lyrics, I'm listening to the, the, the melody of the lyrics, not necessarily the words. And, and, and I have to say one of the things like that for me, for TPOH all the time, like for over time, one of the things that makes it for me work so well and is so powerful is the harmonies of like right now with Chris and D, but going back to like, you know, Leslie and and others it's it's those strong female harmonies that to me I got goosebumps I just I really do because it's just like anyway it's it, where I'm going with this is I'm sort of geeking out again here but it's just more it's those it's those harmonies on top of what you do that to me just make just put the icing on the cake well I guess um, like that's harmony has always been a big thing for me. Like even when I was in the punk world, I still really liked harmonies. Mm-hmm. And cause I grew up like listening to like the, you know, all those bands I was talking about, the Beatles, the Beach Boys. And then later on, like with the Raspberries, Badfinger, I always had like really great vocal harmonies. And so that was always a big thing with me. And so when I started the, the band, when I started the Pursuit of Happiness, I said, I wanted to have like lots of harmonies, but I didn't feel like I could find guys that could sing that great. So I thought I'm just going to get women to sing these harmonies I feel like I had a better chance of finding someone who could do that so that was kind of the whole thing and so it kind of what it did was it kind of gave us a bit of a I guess a unique sound because we kind of had this sort of like hard edge sort of like from our our punk kind of upbringing and then the sort of rock metal kind of thing and then we had but it was all kind of tempered with these harmonies and so and also just the idea of like there wasn't a lot of bands where there was like men and women in the band. And so all those things kind of contributed to sort of like giving us some kind of unique sort of both from a visual and from a musical point of view, it kind of made us a bit unique. And I think that was part of like our appeal, I guess. Yeah. hundred percent. hundred percent. It was also maybe something that people hated about us too. So <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask Mo, I mean, a, a lot of, you know, as as you're writing, you know, you're writing as a teen and you're 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 in your twenties. Um, I don't know whether you're thinking about big existential questions about, you know, gender equity and you know political correctness and so on and so forth. But a lot of people, you know, since you made those records, would look back at the lyrics and and such and try to figure out, you know, who is Mo? Where does he stand on uh gender equality? Where does he stand on, you know, all these different social um topics and, and I'm curious if you ever if you ever thought of, of those things when you were writing your music and your lyrics. Well yeah it's it's an interesting thing because it's funny because um because I mean this has always been part of my writing like when I had the my band the modern minds and we made record it says like it's all I was like I was just like a very horny 19 year old virgin you know and so I was writing about sex, but I didn't even really know what I was talking about. You know? <laughs> yeah. And so it was like, you know, and so, you know, in the pursuit of happiness, I'd, you know, I write these sort of like, you know, 
sexual kind of lyrics, but it was like, I was just kind of like, that's just what I was thinking about. I was a young dude, you know, and, and, and as, but I, I always felt like I had this sort of like, because I grew up like in a fundamentalist Christian household, you know, I always had this like, you know, sense of morality, I guess. Mm -hmm. And so like, I think a lot of people misunderstood some of the stuff that I wrote because I would like, like a song like Looking for Girls, it just sounds completely psychotic. And I admitted that it sounds psychotic. But it's like, <laughs> but, I, but the, the whole idea of the song was when you get to the end of the song, the punchline is like, I'm going to do it to her 487,000 times. And the idea is that, well, that would take you your whole lifetime. So the whole thing is like, I'm looking for someone that I could just be with for the rest of my life. You know, so I'm looking for girls, but I'm really just looking for a mate, I guess. And then on our next record, the same thing. I had this gigantic like fight with the two women in our band, Leslie and Chris about a song called The One Thing. And The One Thing, it was like, it was just like, again, one of these like stupid, crazy, idiotic things. But the whole thing was like talking about being like, you know, sexually obsessed, but then it was like, you know, like flirting and all that stuff. But the, the punchline of the song is, baby, there's one thing I'm saving just for you. I just wanna, and so the idea was, the song was essentially about monogamy. But you you know you have to kind of listen to it to get that, and if you don't, if you're just listening to it on the surface, you might think this is just like some weirdo, you know. <laughs> so that that's the whole thing, and so I guess you know, I I had this idea, you know, like I was just like a guy that that you know was like a regular guy that sort of thought about things in a regular way, but I still had this idea of morality that I wasn't like just you know, like white snake or poison or something like that. It wasn't just, I certainly never had that attitude towards women. And I never had a, an attitude towards women that was sort of like misogynist or anything. Sure, sure. It's never been part of my thing. And so I was always hoping, you know, and I, and I was, you know, I, I became, you know, I feel like I, you know, became friends with Michael Hollett from Now Magazine. I don't think he would have been friends with me if he thought I was a misogynist. And I think he understood what I was, where I was coming from and, I, I always hope that people will listen to the lyrics and say, I get what this guy is trying to say. He's maybe a little bit lusty, but, you know, he's, he, his heart's in the right place. Mm -hmm. And he's also 19 years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Also yeah. <laughs> it's interesting because we had uh, Danny Miles from uh, July Talk on, and he talked about even, like, some of the earlier July Talk songs that Leah now just won't even... Well, like she's like, no, we're not doing it anymore. Right. It's interesting. Again, it's, you know. Yeah, it's it's funny because I, I get it. You know, at this point in my career or my life or whatever, I get a lot of people saying, you know, you know, what's it like to like, you know, when we we re-release Love Junk as a deluxe reissue vinyl mm -hmm. kind of thing. So we went on to we went and did a bunch of shows and we played it from beginning to end. And you know, people ask me sometimes like, "What's that like? Like, what's it like to play those songs at this point in your life?" And it's like, and it's like some of those songs, it's just like, "Wow, that's just weird. Who was that dude?" And then some <laughs> of those songs are like, like you know, they almost seem more poignant now than they uh, did when I first wrote them. Like, "She's so young," or "I'm an adult now," or songs like that. It just like, you know, and then you know, a song like "Walking in the Woods" kind of like terrifies me now. Like I mm -hmm. when I think about it now, but at the time I was just like. I felt like I was just kind of telling a story. I didn't think that much about it, but now I find it kind of disturbing, I guess. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't trying to be disturbing at the time. I was just telling. The whole, that song itself was the Johnny and me, our bass player, Johnny Sinclair, we used to have this game where it would be, it was called Cutest Girl in the Laundromat. And it's just like, you go to the laundromat and you just 
pick out the cutest girl in the laundromat and it's like that's the end of the game <laughs> you know? and so it's kind of like you're in the subway it's like look around who's the cutest girl in the subway you know and you say oh that's the cutest girl in the subway and it's like that's kind of was the whole impetus for that song it was like you know you're looking in the subway and i noticed this girl and then made up this whole terrible story about it you know like hmm. so it, they they the the impetus of the song or the origins of the song were completely innocent you know yeah so, Greg, I, I think it's a good time to get to some listener questions. Okay. Um, I'll go first. So, so you know, talk, talking about that, uh, David Jones, uh, known as Doctor Jones on uh, on Twitter and everywhere else. Uh, this is what he says: I always loved the cynical lyrics to consciousness raising as a social tool. Mo definitely had his finger on the pulse of what was going on. Love Junk felt like a snapshot of being young in Toronto. With so many great lyrics, I'd love to know if he looks back at any of those, uh, at any from those days and cringes. Yeah, and I can think it's just like I said, I don't necessarily cringe as much as I'm like, I feel, I mean, this is what's great about being young is the fearlessness you have. Yeah. I feel like as an older person, it's like, I don't know if I should say that. <laughs> true. But, like, you know, but if so you true. feel that way, that's not a good thing as an artist. Like an artist, you need to feel like, you know, a little bit fearless. And mm -hmm. so I don't, I wouldn't necessarily cringe. I mean, it's not like consciousness raising. I'm completely behind that sentiment right to this day. I mean, it's mm -hmm. like this sort of fake, this sort of fake sort of self-help kind of thing. Yeah, I'm all about that still to this day. Connie, we, we talked a bit about, uh, I'll let you go next, Greg. Uh, Connie wanted to know about the band's origins. I think we talked a little bit about that. Uh, but she also asks, what projects are on his bucket list still? Like, like things I want to achieve? Yeah, maybe things you want to do. Hmm, that's an interesting question. Well, I, I wrote, I haven't, I, I I haven't written a lot of songs over the last 15 or 20. I have, that's not true. I've written a lot of songs with other people. So I get together with people and write songs, but it's typically for them. Like we, mm -hmm. I help them write songs for themselves. And I haven't written a lot of songs like for, for me to perform or for my band to perform. And so I wrote some songs during the pandemic, like every other person on earth did. <laughs> and so, and I recorded them and I'm thinking about like putting them out. And so, but I'm trying to, get good enough at mixing them to sort of do it and so like i'm a producer but i'm not a mix engineer it's two very different things believe me and so i typically get someone else to mix the stuff i produce and so i'm sort of thinking you know it'd be great to just be able to mix this myself and put it out and so i've just been mixing them for the last i don't know year and and so that would be something I, eventually i would like to just release that and I, I would release it with just like here it is not like, hey, I'm making a record. I'm going on tour. I'm going to talk to Rolling Stone. It'd just be like, I'll throw it up on like SoundCloud and anybody wants to trot over there, they can listen to it. Kind of thing. Nice. Nice, nice. Um, yeah, I was going to actually uh, sort of, what I was going to ask was sort of dovetails off that is, um, so you're working at, you're, you're, are you teaching at Fanshawe? Yeah. You are teaching at Fanshawe. I just wanted to yeah, make sure of that. So, yeah. So uh, really what I wanted to know was, you know, what's it like to work with the young up and coming, you know, producers and musicians? Like I know my drummer back in my days went to Fanshawe. And so, you know, what, what, what are you seeing with the young kids that are coming up? 
Well, yeah, that's a very interesting thing because, so yeah, it's like right around the time that the pursuit of happiness started to get exhausted, I started getting offers to produce bands. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to do this. And so I started producing bands. And what was great about it was, was um, one of the things that was the worst part of being in a band was having to constantly sell yourself and constantly like promote yourself. And it was just something I just couldn't do. It was really hard for me to do that. I felt stupid and awkward. And then when I was producing, it was just like, I can go into the studio and I can be creative and I can help people. And then once the project's done, I just walk away. And I don't have to think about how am I going to sell this? I don't have to call a radio station and beg them to call much music. It's like, please play our video. Please, please. What do I have to do? And so anyway, so I thought that was great. And then I just kind of started doing that more than I, and then the band kind of went on a sort of very lengthy hiatus. And so anyway, so I produced long enough that I ended up getting a call from Fanshawe College saying, you know, you want to teach it. And I was like, geez, I never thought of that, you know. And then I said, well, let's give it a try, you know. And so I tried it and it was really great. It was fun. And so because I was like, I don't I'm not a teacher. I don't know. I never went to teacher's college. I don't know anything about this. So just tell them what you do. Just go into the classroom and tell them what you do. I said, OK, I can do that. So I went and I just talked, told them what I did. Like, here's what you do when you're a producer. And so I did that and it was great. And and so I've been doing it for, yeah, I don't know, 12 years now, I guess. Mm-hmm. And um, and what's great about it is it is great to meet. That's What's interesting about kids, the, the kids I teach is, is, you know, the idea you would have is like, they're just into like making beats and making EDM and stuff like that. But it's like, that's not actually true. They're into that, but most of them can play the guitar or play the drums or play bass or they play a horn or something like that and there's there's still musicians and, and then we put on this big concert every year called share the land and it's all just people performing music so it's not like djs up there it's just all people forming little bands and playing songs so kids you know as brian adams said everywhere i go kids want to rock you know <laughs> yeah and that's kind of true it's like as much as the kids are into like electronic music and beat making they're still interested in just music as as music so so both things are great so it's made me more interested in electronic music and stuff and i always liked hip-hop and so i'm not a huge fan of today's hip-hop i'm going to be honest with you but i still am I, I love that I get to learn from these kids. They sort of show me, like, they, they make, they force me to sort of, like, investigate the things that they're into. And so that part of it's really great, very rewarding. Fascinating. I read somewhere that you have or had stage fright? Yes. So is, that, is that a current thing or...? No, it's not a current thing. Not long after the band sort of stopped playing, I, I really part I really developed stage fright. And so I tried mm. to play a little bit. I released a solo record and I went around and played by myself. And and it was kind of like a talking half jokes, half show kind of thing, half music thing. And I got as I started doing it, I I really enjoyed it at first, and then I stopped enjoying it. And I and then. I, for about 15 years, I just, I hated being on stage, hated it. Wow. And then the Pursuit of Happiness did some some shows um, and um, it was okay. It wasn't amazing. It was okay. I still felt really uncomfortable. And then um, um, Universal released the Greatest Hits record and I did about six shows with that. And it was like, it's still really, really uncomfortable to be on stage, mm-hmm. really horrible. Um, just so much anxiety. And then, um, and then what happened was I... 
I have a friend, his name is Jim Milan, and he's like a theatrical director, producer, and he's like involved in like Kids in the Hall and uh, Mythbusters and all these shows, Alton Brown, and he was involved in that whole Spider-Man thing on Broadway. And, um, and he said, I want to put this show together. It's going to be like a bunch of Canadian songwriters and we're going to just do this show. And so it was me and Craig Northy from Odds and Stephen Page, who used to be in the Bare Naked Days, and Chris Murphy from Sloan. Mm-hmm. And so we put this band together called the Trans-Canada Highwaymen. Oh, yeah. And so so we're going to do these shows and then we thought, well, let's, let's get our feet wet. And we went and did a show in Niagara Falls and I went on stage and I was like, this is great. Because it's like, it's not just me. Like, the, the you know, the problem with being in the pursuit of happiness is that it's kind of on me. I'm sort of like the front man. And, yeah. and I that was very deliberate. That was my intention the whole time. But then, so when I was on the on stage with those guys, it's like, I'm just one of the guys. I barely have to do anything. <laughs> Chris and Steven do all the talking because they're both super hilarious. And so they talk most of it. And I'm just kind of like playing the bass or playing guitar and telling them one or two stories and so that helped me a lot and then once uh, and then we pursuit of happiness was asked to play um there's a a radio station in in montreal called show fm Mm -hmm. and so one of their legendary djs this guy named too tall he was retiring and so they said he's gonna have a big party and they and they asked him like who do you want to play at your party he said i want the pursuit of happiness to play so um and we weren't even like literally really a band um, and so, so we, you know, he called us up and said, would you do this? And we all like, yeah, let's do this. It'll be fun. We'll go to Montreal. So we went to Montreal and we played the show and we had a blast and I loved it. It was so fun. And then, you know, did all the things that we do as a band, like got all stupid and drunk and had a great time. And then someone from the, someone was there who was like an agent and he was like, and he contacted our manager and he said, I said, that was incredible. These guys could do like a thousand shows. Like we'll book them. And then we didn't end up going with them. But then it was like, let's do this. And then at the exact same time, Universal Records said, we want to do a, like a anniversary record of, of Log Junk. So it just kind of all serendipitously kind of happened. We did a show at the Horseshoe for their 70th anniversary. And same thing, yeah. we just did a blast. And so we were like, there. And so it kind of like, I just felt fine again. I felt good. Nice. And so it all kind of went away. So that's been good. That's okay. great. Yeah, Cream and I were at the uh, that Horseshoe show. I also great uh, show. Great yeah, show. it was amazing. And my wife and my wife and I actually did the the supermarket show when you did the small one in the back room, which was unbelievable, unbelievable. Oh, cool! Uh, and that yeah. was the actual release of that that record. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah we went uh, out and did a bunch of shows. We went across Canada and kind of did shows, and it was really fun. So yeah, good. That's that's great. Um, one of the things from from your Instagram feed that reminded me of. Remind me of a story back, I can't remember what year it would have been, 84, maybe something like that. And I remember going to see ministry at RPM back in the day. And they had all the fair lights on the side, and then they had like the Junos and the, as their sort of slaves or as they were playing off of, right? And I remember Elaine Jorgensen picking up one of the Junos and just smashing it. And as a keyboardist, I'm like in tears. I'm standing at the front, you know, in, in tears. And that's where I'm going with it. My Juno that's 60, ex- don't smash it. <laughs> that's exactly where I'm going. I, I, I you know, seeing the Juno 60 and the 808 on your, your Instagram feed, it's like, are you like, do you geek out over collecting old gear like that? And well, well, I I just have those things. Like I have those from back in the day. Like, mm-hmm. and so I I bought a Juno sixty. This was part of that whole like, 
you know, black music thing I was into. It's like I saw I got into like synthesizers and I, I love synthesizers. Like I just love them. I love analog synthesizers. I love the way they sound. And, and it, you know, it's, it's kind of like people who collect guitars. I have no interest in guitars. Like I have the guitars that I play, but I'm not interested in collecting them. And it's like I have a guitar I like playing. And so that's my guitar. But I love synthesizers and I love drum machines. I have tons of drum machines and I have beatboxes and stuff like that. I just, I love the way they sound. I love the way they look. I just love the whole kind of like idea of them. And so, um, yeah, so I, uh, and so I, these songs that I wrote, they're real, just like straight ahead, guitar, bass, drums, vocals, pop songs, but they all have like, like, analog synthesizer stuff on them and sequencers and stuff like that all kind of weird mm. you know like um like you know old arps or moogs or all yeah, yeah. and you know the juno and stuff like that on them so i just love that music i love that i mean because that you know i was still like i had no appreciation for synthesizer music when it was happening. This was all post. I, I, I mm. got a sort of like a appreciation for it later. And so I just love the sound of analog synthesizers. Just love the beauty of it. Like craft work. I would just love listening to craft ah. how beautiful they made their synthesizer sound. They were so warm and beautiful. It's like Kraftwerk makes some of the most beautiful music that I've ever heard in my whole life. And I, I don't think that was... I think that was partly their intention, but I don't think that's necessarily what people think about. But I just, when I listen to those, the sounds they created, it's just like this sort of beautiful sounds. And I think what I love about Kraftwerk was that they, you know, if you're old enough, you remember that when synthesizers came out, there was a lot of energy being put into sort of making them sound like a horn or a piano or a harpsichord or something. And it was like, there was a lot of like, trying to make it sound like a real instrument. And Kraftwerk was like, that's an idiotic idea. We already have those instruments that can make that sound. Like, let's make our own cool, interesting sounds. We have, we have this instrument that's got like an infinite palette of sounds. Like, let's just kind of make our own sounds up. And they weren't the only people doing that, but I think they were yeah. like someone who they were a group that really created the idea of the synthesizer as its own kind of thing. That it wasn't something that was supposed to generate sounds that were already analog, like analog instruments, violins or whatever. Yeah. Absolutely. Mo, we have a segment called Lost Venues. Um, so we'd like to, to, to discover a, a venue, maybe a favorite one of yours, maybe one that has a, a terrible story, um, a funny one, though. But I'm, I'm curious, Mo, if there's a, a memory you have of, of a lost venue in the past. Well, I, I can think of so many. In Toronto, so <laughs> many venues have come and gone. Like Yeah. We were talking earlier about the cabana room. The cabana room was just such an interesting place because it was a place that anyone could play. Yeah. Like anybody could play there because no one really went there. It was terrible. It was a terrible <laughs> place to play. Had bad sound system, and no one really liked going there. And so the Pursuit of Happiness played there like a thousand times because it was like, at least it was a gig. You know, you could go and play a show and, and you know, and so, and the guy who ran the place was great. It was this guy named Jimmy Scopes. And, uh, and he, had, I don't think he knew anything about music, but he's just a guy who ran a bar and he just, you call him up and he'd book you in. And then, you know, if you did him wrong, it's like, you'll never play here again. You know, I was like, he's like, you're the best in the business. You know, he's just like this funny, funny guy. And so uh, and I, I, there was two places. There was that. And then there was like, um, um, what's the other place I'm thinking of? Larry's Hideaway. Oh yeah. Larry's Hideaway was like essentially a biker bar. 
but it was a place that bands like mine could play like because they again book almost anybody and no one ever went there and so you go and you play for whoever showed up and it was always kind of disgusting and it was disgusting in there the bar was disgusting everything about it was disgusting sound system was (laughs) (laughs) it was a place to play and you know what i owe so much to both of those bars like larry's hideaway and and the cabana room gave me our band a chance to play and get better and play shows and you know mm. even if there wasn't anybody there we still got had to go up on stage and play and that's a great experience for a band to play in front of like 10 people like yeah. how am i going to entertain these 10 people that is a very very important thing for a band to to do to know how to get up in front of nobody and still put on a try and put on a good show and that helped us a lot because our whole philosophy as a band was because we'd always hear about people saying, you know, oh, there's no one there. So we just kind of like, you know, kind of walk through the show. We didn't really try that hard or, you know. And I'd always see that I, when I was a kid in Edmonton, I'd go to shows and I'd see bands and I could tell they were just like, they didn't care they were in Edmonton. They were just kind of walking through. I saw Queen and Freddie hardly even sang. And same thing with like, I saw Van Halen and David Lee Roth was just like talking. He wasn't even trying to sing or anything, saving his voice for like a cooler show. And I always kind of irritated me. So we are this philosophy that's like, if we don't put on an amazing show, like we're going to get thrown out of show business. Mm. And so, so every night we went on and we just tried to kill it. Even if there was no one in the audience, we just tried. So thought, you never know who's going to be here. Maybe there'll be a journalist there and they'll be like, wow, I went to see the pursuit happiness. There's eight people there and they killed it. And I always thought that that was so playing in front of, you know, in these bad bars in front of nobody. I think that's great training and it makes makes you strong and it makes you feel like it's still important to put on a good show every single night. Yep. Agree. agree with you a hundred percent. It's funny because one of my, we've, we've done a couple of segments about lost venues where we've actually just spent our time, the two of us together chatting about one was the command room. And then the, one of the others was Larry's hideaway. Cause that was my first gig. And it was like, you know, we didn't even have a drummer. I had a 909, I think it was at the time. And uh, the old white one or whatever it was, or maybe it was 707. It doesn't matter. Anyway, either way. And, um, and, and I remember we're at Larry's Hideaway and we were, the band came out of sort of the, that sort of speed punk, but then we were very new wave. So here we are with a drum machine walking on stage at Larry's Hideaway and we either had gold LeMay or silver LeMay suits, matching suits, all of us, <laughs> like the whole Prince thing. And Jimmy comes out doing his shuffle and he steps on the cord to the drum machine and then all the, the drum machine just stops oh, <laughs> and you're like <laughs> and it's larry's hideaway or like it was my my personally my first gig in toronto as a kid i was like whatever 16 at the time probably or something like that uh, oh my god you're right i mean it's just like if you can't if you can't come if you can't if you can't walk into that room with half a dozen people and put on a good show yeah yeah, sorry, I'm just in such. Uh, it's a great training. You learn that you learn the, the the value of gaffer tape, duct tape, mm-hmm. duct taping down those cables. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I thought thing. I had it covered, but apparently I didn't. Apparently I didn't. Um, so, Mo, one of the questions we'd like to ask our guests before we wrap up is: is what's in your earbuds lately? What are you listening to that people should be checking? Well, that's very interesting. I, I, I'm always, I'm sort of like, I. I a lot of times I'll put out and just try and find like a Spotify playlist of new stuff just so I can kind of hear something new. And often I'll find something cool um, just by accident. You listen, And the whole thing is on those playlists, you listen to 20 terrible songs and then there was one good one. And then it's like, hey, I found a good song. That's great. And then the other thing is just pure nostalgia. Like 
I go back and listen to songs from like, you know, the sixties and the seventies and just kind of, it's, it's such a weird thing. Like nostalgia is such a weird thing. People used to think nostalgia was like a mental illness. The fact that you would, you would long for these sort of like past experiences and that was there's something wrong with that but to me it's just like there's you know I, I hear songs that I didn't even necessarily like that much and then I hear them and they just fill me with a sense of like longing I think one of the things that's great about music is how it attaches to something like one of the things I've always been very like interested in is the idea of summer because I grew up in Edmonton where summer is like about six and a half weeks long <laughs> and, and and it was like so summer was like it was just like almost like an extended christmas season basically because it was like so short and and so you know and then the idea was like right after summer it was going to be like terrifyingly cold and dark and dangerous and horrible and so all through my life i've had this idea and i even called my record summers over and you know and I'll, you know the idea like i was such a huge beach boys fan and still am a huge beach boys fan and i love the idea of like celebrating summer because to me summer was like an event it wasn't like something that happened there was no such thing as endless summer like the beach boys talk about or you know if you live in california or florida or you know the caribbean or something like summer goes on all year long but that wasn't a thing for me and so what was it? Sorry, I feel like I got no. Just what, what you listen to lately? Like what? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so I listen to a lot of like yeah. really old music, like from the sixties and seventies. And I remember I was watching that show. Um, I, I was telling someone else this story. I was watching that show, um, the the Queen's Gambit. You remember? Did you watch? I don't yeah. know. If you watched it. But yeah, yeah. anyway, they played that song "You're the One" by the Vogues, and it came on, and I was like, I was just sitting with my wife watching, and I was like. I was just trying as hard as I could to stop, not cry when I was watching it. Cause it was just like, it just brought these feelings out of me. Like, I just remember that song and just like, I was a kid listening to the radio and I was just like, Oh my God, like, where's my life gone? What have I done with my life? <laughs> just like, I mean, it was like the, the, the thing that is so weird about nostalgia is that like it, it, it creates an idea of, of your imminent demise. <laughs> it's like, I don't want to get like, but it's just like, I'm going to die soon, you know, like, and it's just like, and all this stuff happened and it's like, you know, and so it's just like, it just, it feels like I can reconnect with something. So I listen, so I spent a lot of time listening to like, you know, old music, like old, and, I, and I'm really fascinated with even old fashioned music that happened before I was even born and stuff like that. I'm just like the origins of rock and roll, like you know, Louis Jordan or something like that. Like, where's all this you know, all the music that sort of like started boogie woogie and then came and turned into rock and roll and stuff like that. So I'm just fascinated with anything old. I, I'm, I, that's what I'm interested in right now. I love old music. That's, that's, that's interesting. Cause I know, you know, Kareem pointed out a number of times, particularly during COVID how well Q107 was doing in the ratings. And I think it's to your point of nostalgia, right? Oh. It's like, it's shitty times. So I'm just going to listen to the music I love to listen to. And the music I grew up with. I will say I did not listen to classic rock. But <laughs> I didn't. He does, I but yeah. Music before that, like listen to yeah. music. Yeah, but yeah, um, yeah, but it's interesting. I mean, to your point of nostalgia, right? I, I totally understand why. If, if classic rock is your nostalgia, then I understand why you want to connect. Yeah. It's a feeling of comfort, you know. Like mm -hmm. in hard times, you're just looking for anything to make you feel comfortable. Sure, um, Mo. 
What advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? I would say work harder. I feel like I spend a lot of time just not working as hard as I need to. I, weird things would happen to me. I'd be like, we'd be in like some town and, and, um, and, uh, and then, you know, we get there and some record company person there and say, here, I want to give you the script. Uh, like, can you write a song? And I look at the script and it's like, oh, yeah, whatever. I put it down and it's like, let's go to the bar and get a drink. And the script would be like natural born killers. You know, huh. and it's yeah. like, <laughs> why didn't I try to write a song for that? <laughs> <laughs> hmm. You know, and then, you know, like, and then I remember, you know, things like I was on, um, I was like in Florida somewhere and then I'm like, one of these weird, you know, like I talked about with Todd Ring where like the phone rings and it's like, yeah, there's a phone call for me. It's like, and it was Duff McKeegan from like Guns N' Roses. And he's like, oh, I love you, man. We listen to you guys all the time. And, you know, we should write a song together. And I was like, yeah, we should. That'd be fun. You know, you know, and then it's like, and then, you know, things happen where that turned into something impossible because then they became so famous and stuff like that. But I feel like I should have worked that a little harder. I should have just like, yeah, let's write it. I'll come to L.A. and let's get together yeah. and write it. But it was kind of like, yeah, we should write it. And then I never pushed it as hard as I needed to. So, yeah, like one of the things that I tell my students is like opportunities, like you don't have anything better to do. Like whenever opportunity comes your way, you just take that opportunity. I kind of always tell them this story. So this, I, I, I was like, uh, um, once I went to this like show, like music business thing, and and um and I met this guy, and he was like a big sort of R and B record company manager guy in Toronto for a while, and um and he was he had this group of women that he was sort of representing, and they were kind of like a post Spice Girls kind of thing, like when that was happening, or what was that? band that in Canada that was kind of like that and they had a TV show about them and whatever it was kind of like that um, remember the days I like that that girl band whatever and so um anyway um so she, they had this and so I and so he introduced me to them and then there's a photographer from from uh um the, the Charles Starr and said hey Mo get in the picture with the girls there and so I got a picture and then the next day it's on the front cover of the Toronto Star this picture and so then everybody thought I was associated with this group, you know, because I had my picture taken with them. And then so anyway, so the guy called me up one day and said, hey, you know, the girls are shooting a video and, you know, uh, and, um, you know, you should come down to the video shoot. And it was like, it was like in some horrible place like Cherry Beach or something where it's like impossible <laughs> to get there, you know, and it's like it was raining outside and it was like. You know, I was kind of feeling like too cheap to take a cab or whatever. I, you know, I don't know. I was just like, and then, you know, Blue Jays were playing. And I was just like, I I'm just going to stay home. I'm just not going to go to that. And then the guy never talked to me again, ever. Uh. And I'm thinking to myself, nothing the, nothing happened with that band. They just disappeared. But I just thought, <laughs> what a stupid thing. Why didn't I just haul my ass out and just go down there? I just, all I did, because I hated videos too. I hated shooting videos. My band did like 14 videos and I hated every experience. And so I just thought, the last thing I want to do is go to a video shoot. But if I just gone for an hour, who knows? I might have, something might have happened. Maybe it wasn't that group. Maybe it was another group or something. But like, that's just a wasted opportunity. And I had nothing better to do. I did not have anything better to do. So that's my biggest advice to anybody. It's like, if you have an opportunity to do anything in music, do it. Because it might not even be that thing. 
but that thing might lead to something else and that might be the thing that changes your life all right yeah so you don't sitting at home or expecting things to fall on your lap that's never going to happen if you don't if you I, my my mantra in life is if you do nothing nothing happens that's my that's my that's great sugar sure. jones was the name of that band sugar jones yes thank you yeah thank you to uh to google <laughs> if only there was a way we could find out. <laughs> did you did you remember the set? Did you remember the songwriter or the uh, artist you were talking about that would get up on stage and just? Who you were mentioning about? Who was that? He because Kareem was saying like Bob Dylan or oh yeah, The Rock, <laughs> the oh, political, the, the political oh, Billy Bragg, huh. Billy Bragg. Oh, Billy Bragg. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Billy Bragg. Nice. Yeah. Actually, it wasn't Billy Bragg. With Dynalon at one point for a short bit there, I think. He may have. I think so. I think I think I think he joined I think he joined Dynalon for a short bit on the roster. Anyway, sorry. I digress. Mo, this has been fun. Thank you. Thank you so much uh for this. Um it's it's been a blast. And and of course, thank you for the music over all these years. Uh looking forward to listening to your new stuff. Um if people want to find out what you're up to musically or, 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 or otherwise, where's, is there a place online that they can go to? Well, there's moberg.ca and I've got like, you know, I have a blog on there that I write about once every six months and, uh, and I have like some stuff that I produced and, you know, whatever. And then there's, I have Instagram and Facebook and MySpace. No, I don't. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, um, and Twitter. And it's usually Mo T-P-O-H if you ever want to try and find me. Awesome. Perfect. Mo Berg thank from you, The Pursuit of Happiness has been our guest. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Mo. This has been yes. fun. Great. Thank you. Great to talk to you guys.